0: Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today we welcome John Shannon to discuss Evolve or Die, Hard-Won Lessons from a Hockey Life. Published by Simon & Schuster Canada and Shannon Sports Media. It was released on October 25th, 2022. John Shannon has officially been working in sports broadcasting for 45 years and counting. In that time, he heavily influenced the institution known as Hockey Night in Canada. He started as a production assistant in 1977 and rose to producing the games from Western Canada. And those were the years of of Wayne Gretzky and the high-flying Oilers in their heyday and the Battle of Alberta. Uh, That first stint lasted until 1986 he returned to the program as executive direct executive producer in 1994 and held the role until 2000 for the average fan the producer isn't someone you really think of or know about but they run the show behind the scenes they decide what you will see and how you will see it they carry the weight mm-hmm.
1: yes and what's notable about john shannon's t- tenure's uh Neither of which lasted ten years exactly at Hockey Night in Canada. Well, see, he came when they were in that period. You know, like the needle, you know, the tends to be flat, flat, and then it will go up and down, like you know, like a you know a seismograph. And that was what happened in Hockey Night in Canada both times he was there in the that late seventies through mid eighties period. That's when sports on television is starting to to explode. That's when ESPN is going on there in the states. That's when you know TSN is launching in Canada, and that's also when Hockey night in Canada is challenged to go from outside the you know Toronto Montreal uh, you know corridor in in central Canada to you know welcoming in the West with uh, you know four new teams coming in coming in as you mentioned Neil and John Shannon as a Westerner you know guy who grew up in D.C. didn't actually know that about him uh, was was part of that part of that in, the, in those uh, you know wild and woolly days and then when he came back you know. For a second go around, you know, in the mid-90s, that was when they also had to scale up the show again uh, to a standard Saturday night double header instead of just one game at 8 o'clock local time. And then they were were building in a journalism piece with the satellite hot stove segments, which, of course, we explored in our Al Strachan episode in 2020, Season 4, Episode 11. And so that's a little 411 on Mr. Shannon, who has... 2020 vision about what hockey should look like on TV.
0: That's right, Nate, Season 4, Episode 11, as you said. Um, And Shannon uh, has also won a Sports Emmy Emmy for Outstanding Live Sports Special for the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympics coverage with NBC. He was an NHL Executive VP of Broadcasting in 2008-09. Then he spent a decade at Sportsnet as a commentator for their hockey coverage and partnered with Bob McCowan at Primetime Sports. They have since uh, transported their talents to to the podcast world uh, around 2020 when when McCowan was uh, laid off or fired. (laughs) No, I think he was laid off from Rogers. Uh, And uh, they have since uh, been appearing on Sirius XM. Shannon has the rare distinction of being, I think it was a buyout actually. Uh, Shannon has the rare distinction of being the first sports producer that I know of to move from behind the camera to a role in front of it a part of his evolution in this ruthless industry there's that theme of evolution evolve or die he explains the roots of this move in his book and we'll talk about that with him during our interview
1: Mm -hmm. in reading the book you, you get a sense of where he's coming from you know in coming to make television anyone who i think makes tv or makes any sort of you know creative product They're they start out as the, you know an aficionado scholar of the medium or scholar of the genre even if those aren't the terms they would self-apply now let alone when they're you know that that kid you know falling in complete thrall with it uh you know the type who doesn't watch a game to see who wins i mean they're interested in that obviously but they're also taking note of you know the presentation and how to build you know the dramatic effect uh neil every sports person we know has done this uh, i think when you were a kid you took you know an empty pop can and you would hold it in, in front of yourself like a microphone and you would call the play-by-play off the tv and of course in my case then my dad would be like you know most kids who like sports go and play them outside <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> but <laughs> what you digress
1: you yeah why well, can't you do anything like a normal person uh, well i've Shannon- asked
0: myself that a lot about you nate but anyway continue
1: yeah, and John also says, uh, we don't hold grudges, Neil, just only against each other, right? <laughs> uh, and I, Shannon likely, you know, he had that similar experience, and he writes about in the book growing up in, uh, you know, 1960s British Columbia, learning his sports through the radio, listening to, you know, all-time uh, play-by-play greats, uh, two of whom I think are, are you know, topical, somewhat topical, because one was Vin Scully calling Dodge. Dodgers games and, uh, you know, Vin's energy just returned to the earth uh, this this past summer. Another, of course, was the great Lakers announcer Chick Hearn, who's, you know, you know depicted in the uh, Winning Time uh, hmm. HBO series, which is based on a book by a, another one of our guests from 2020, Jeff Perlman. And he also mentions uh, a guy who's not as well known, but probably should have had a biopic, a guy named Bill King, who is uh, in Oakland. Uh, his book uh, summons up something else I read. John's book, of course, summons up something else I read recently. Uh, this line, I won't say where I found it. Uh, Fear kills more dreams than failure ever will. And that sort of, you know, makes this book a little bit inspirational, although that's not where you're, you're going to find it in your bookstore. Uh, you know, like everyone who's worked in broadcasting as long as John has as you know, they've been part of things that you know where they had the right idea but didn't have you know the right financing, or you know they had the financing but the you know the execution didn't didn't work out. So he's a, you know experienced failure, but obviously you know someone who's had the career he has is not become fearful. And like they say, Neil, if you never take a chance, you never have a chance.
0: And you never innovate, which is a, a big hallmark of a great TV producer. And and John has uh has done that and did that. With with hockey night and elsewhere, and John, evolve or die. Remember, as the title of this book was was let go by by Rogers in a cost cutting move, one of many and one of many that'll still come, uh, and that was in July of twenty nineteen. Uh, So it was another evolution that had to take place, and he jumped into a role as the managing editor of CBC's Hockey Coverage for Beijing 2022. In this role, he guided editorial content. I'm not going to use that word. I hate the word content. He just guided the editorial direction of uh, what we were seeing on air and worked very closely with a fresh crop of of on-air hosts and analysts. Being back at CBC for that was another homecoming of sorts. Remember, he had two different stints uh, at Hockey Night in Canada. He is referred to Hockey Night in Canada as Team Blue. Uh, you know, there's two teams playing on the ice, and there's Team Blue, which is another team broadcasting that action. And he says that's part of his family. He's fully vested in that institution, in the institution that was, and he still holds that connection very close to his heart, just like he holds his family's. Just, it's family. It's family.
1: Indeed and that's a connection you know Canadians you know felt for generations we have a lot of you know what I call emotional equity in these hockey telecasts that are after all owned by a couple of mega corporations with the express written consent of the National Hockey League but that's something that you know it originates from deep in the culture in a way I, that doesn't happen with other sports properties in this in this country I don't think it's quite like that with the way, way Americans relate to the, you know, whoever puts on the games they watch, uh, you know, that's why, you know, to this day, even with the you know, bajillion dollar Sportsnet deal, there's still an inventory of games on uh, CBC free to view platforms at a time when major live sports aren't, aren't just all on cable. They're now starting to leave cable for uh, streaming services.
0: Yeah, the listeners, uh, you know, that may our listeners that may wonder why, because we cover the wide gamut of sports and try and and, and keep it very broad, uh, not focus on one thing. They may wonder why so many Canadians care about hockey in Canada enough to where they'd want to, you know, read a book about what happens behind the scenes, or at least a large part of a book that that describes what happened behind the scenes and the politics. That's a very fair question. It's a question we asked a previous guest, David Schultz. Yeah,
1: season two, episode five, back in 2018 when we were, you know, passing a microphone around in, a, in an edit suite at the Toronto Reference Library.
0: And don't forget by the way folks, go to our website sportslit.ca and you can listen to all these past episodes, That' why that's why we shout them out by season and, and episode and you can also buy the books on our website How's that for a plug? Anyway, back to Dave Schultz. He smartly described this connection Canadians have and their interest in Hockey in Canada all aspects of Hockey in Canada um, He smartly used an outsider's perspective and that was an American, and an American named John Collins he's the NHL's I think he's gone now but he's the NHL's chief marketing officer uh, who said that the closest thing he could compare Hockey Night Canada to uh, for you know stateside was Monday Night Football and and he said that that comparison isn't even the right comparison to make because the connection isn't there in the same way there's no familial element Monday Night Football is a go grab beers with your buddies on a monday type thing not everyone gather around the hearth the tv uh, as it were and and watch hockey um and the longevity also of hockey in canada is you know it's, it's been around forever if you go back to tv in the 50s and then radio before that so it has it has longevity anyway i digress um in Canada, yes, we're a little bit—we have a little bit of a risk-averse business culture, and that may extend to publishing. So you're not going to see as many books on the shelves about soccer and basketball as you are about hockey. But what I can say, you know, given that kind of—I guess—handicap, if you'll call it—the advantage for a hockey book to sell, even with Sports Lit, where we've covered the gamut um, and a lot of different types of hockey books, whether it's bios or, or subjects like Hockey Night in Canada, um, the highest numbers we've seen. Uh, and we're not about numbers. We don't care about numbers. We just care about good conversation, and intelligent conversation, and fair and balanced conversation. The highest numbers we've seen have a direct connection with hockey night in Canada, and that's Al Strachan's book on uh, you know on the hot stove. Uh, it's called Hot Stove actually, <laughs> about satellite hot stove. Uh, Brian McFarland's uh, Canada host Brian McFarland's book, a hell of a hockey, a hell of a life in hockey. Um, so. There is, a, there is a deep interest, uh, and that's just reiterating it. Back to John Strachan, a journalist who is part of Satellite Hot Stove, as you say, Nate, um, says his time at Hockey Night in Canada was divided into two categories. Quote, the period that John Shannon was there and the period that he wasn't. To me, the former was by far the better, unquote. So Hockey Night in Canada will be a focus of our conversation, but not the only focus with John the book title, after all, is Evolve or Die, and Shannon's career is very much alive due to his adaptability. So coming up, John Shannon, Evolve or Die, Hard Won Lessons from a Hockey Life. Simon Schuster was the publi- is the publisher and Shannon Sports Media, and it was released on October 25th, 2022. And we're back with John Shannon, who we uh, teed up off the top. John, as I said, we're going to get right into it. Uh, congratulations on the book, um, Evolve or Die. So right now, before we get into the, the great history and, and, and all of that, I want to ask you about right now. What is John Shannon currently doing, aside from the Bobcast, which we all know you from, uh, doing with on Sirius?
2: Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny, Neil. I, uh, when, when I left Sportsnet three years ago... I didn't think there would be much opportunity to do other things and boy was I wrong. Um, So in addition to doing the Bob Account Podcast daily, which uh, runs on multiple platforms and has really in the last 18 months uh, taken off and something that both Bob and I are very proud of. uh, I teach two days a week at the College of Sports Media in Toronto. I teach television production. I, I, I joked with uh, Dave Lannis, who runs the school, that uh, perhaps uh, this will be the first textbook uh, <laughs> that will be used uh, in class. Uh, I, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> there, there are a few stories in there that would make some sense for the kids to learn. But um, And then I, I still do a lot of radio and television across the country. I, I do radio and TV in Winnipeg on CJOB and Global. Uh, I do radio and T V in Edmonton on uh, the chorus station in Edmonton C- uh, Ched. Uh, I do some Sportsnet still uh, for Edmonton Oiler broadcast and then I do two two things in Vancouver on uh, a podcast with Matt Sakaris and Blake Price and uh, and with Rick Daliwall and Donnie Taylor as well on T V on Check out of Victoria. So for a guy who's supposed to be slowing down, I'm not slowing down very much. <laughs> well I'm glad in, to ad- hear- in addition to the book and the book the book uh, uh, the books kept me going for the last 18 months.
0: Yeah well written. we're gonna ask you a little bit about that in a moment and it's, I'm glad that you're busy. Um, I work in TV and I sometimes have a tough time explaining to people what I do because when you're behind the scenes it's it's tough So we we are gonna ask you about what you do in front of the camera and on air but you know in your your role as producer um, how do you explain what a producer does to the average guy on the street? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I've been an organizer
2: all my life, whether it was the tackle football game Sunday night uh, (laughs) at our high school uh, football field, Um, whether it was, uh, you know, the Friday night to go into the movies. Um, I've always been a planner and an organizer and getting people to tag along. And in many ways, and, and, and you combine that with, I came from a family of teachers. Um, my mom and dad were both teachers. My two brothers are teachers. Um, uh, I, I think that there's a combination of being a teacher and being an organizer is that that's what a producer does. Mm. Um, the, the other metaphor I use, and, and before before the end of the, of the show, you're gonna know how many metaphors I do use. Uh, the, other, the other metaphor I use is, I. I I look at a bicycle tire uh, and I look um, at uh, the hub of the bicycle tire is the director who's in charge of the pictures uh, and the announcers are the rubber tire on the outside and the spokes are the producer and the, 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 the spokes keep the director and the announcers turning at the same time and that's what I do that's what I did do for the longest time as a producer
0: just uh, touching on, on, on being a teacher, and thank you for that description, because not everybody knows, right? Um, uh, after you left Sportsnet um, and you, you jumped on board with CBC during the Olympics, yep. and you were a managing, I believe the title uh, is was managing editor in hockey, right? That's correct. Yeah. And, they, and, didn't to, they didn't want They they didn't want to give me another big title, so we we came to the agreement of
2: managing editor.
0: So, so but looking at the cast that was on for those broadcasts, there was a lot of new faces on the women's side and then I think Herne her Ryan on the, the, the men's side hosting. How was that, uh, uh, you know, did that tie into teaching in, in the truest form and what you've had to do throughout your career? Because it seemed like A, a little bit.
2: Uh, Neil, uh, it did a little bit because you're right. We had about 13 commentators and uh, we had a handful that uh, some had never really been on television before. Uh, Others had had minimal television experience or had had television experience but not in the roles that they were supposed to be in. Um, And and so there was that teaching component to, okay, when you say something you got to be more descriptive and you got to be simpler and you can't have run on sentences. I always tell people the most important part of a sentence is that period at the end of it because you know when to stop. Uh, and so those are the types of things that we dealt with, particularly early on with Shannon Zabados and Megan Mickelson. Um, and then editorially, w- w- you know, the, uh, with the great commentators we had, it was, a, it was always a, a discussion of what was right, what was wrong, what worked, what wouldn't work. And, and trying to simplify the messaging of what our intermissions and what our openings were supposed to be like. Because I, I, I think the other thing that in our business that happens too much is we really make it complicated. And television, quite frankly, isn't that complicated. It's not. Uh, you just have to be able to take your time and, and, and understand the messages you're trying to deliver and then figure out how to deliver those messages.
0: Go, going to your to your, your you know your roots in production, I thought it be a, it'd be an interesting thing to ask you, kind of a current example of how you would produce a game um so tonight uh and we we try to be evergreen here usually but i'm going to use this example tonight and by the time people listen to this it won't be tonight but the flyers are visiting the leafs (laughs) Mm -hmm. the leafs are under fire there's Mm -hmm. a story angle with mitch marner and sheldon keith and some animosity uh there could be a jersey thrown on the ice i don't know maybe a waffle Um, Can you take me through the day of of a producer from, you know, the morning and the meeting during or after the morning skate, not during, before or after the morning skate to when you go on air? What's happening today when you know there, you know, this type of, there could be something that erupts potentially. Um, Today's really, as a game day, today's more of a day of
2: observation more than anything. Mm. Most of your planning should have been done the last two days. You know, following the Leafs' return from Anaheim, uh, you would have t- made a first blush at, at okay, what what are the important storylines uh, of what you want to talk about uh, in the opening? How, wh- you know, the Marner uh, Sheldon issue certainly uh, is something that needs to be addressed. The Leafs' start needs to be addressed, and 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 contrastly, you need to deal with with John Tortorella uh, and what he's done. Uh, in philadelphia and the start that they're off to um you know they played last night so you would have a little a little more flexibility in what you were going to talk about with them but from that perspective and and the other interesting factor for me and i love threads hmm. and i i describe threads of thing how you can link two stories together and that's what those threads do and if you have three or four threads through the night you have to keep asking yourself did we finish that thread And before we went on to the other one, the other thread is that Sheldon Keith played for John Tortorella Mm. in Tampa for a brief time. Uh, They both went their separate ways. Uh, And and so from that perspective, there's enough content to deal with uh, the issues at hand, the impatience of the Maple Leaf fans, the impatience of John Tortorella. Yeah, and then you just have to find a, a simple way to communicate that. Perhaps it it is a word of impatience. Perhaps it is a word of demand. Is the demand of the leaf fan as much as the demand of John Tortorella? Try to find some linkage that makes it understandable for the viewer to go, hey, that's kind of cool. I I understand now what we're watching.
0: Very nice. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, and
1: I recently heard you say, John, uh, I, I think the quote was, I don't believe very much in compromising what is right for the television that I produce. I just wondered, because there's you know, people who can take things so many ways. Uh, wh- how much of that was, you know, sort of personal credo, and, and what part might have been a bit, bit of a confession?
2: Well, aren't they both the same? A personal <laughs> credo and, and a confession? A little. Um, you know, Nate, I, I, would, I would tell you that, uh, you know, not compromising kept getting me in trouble along the way. Um, but I believed in what I believed. You know, I, um, uh, and, and, understand, and then you also, as, and this was tougher when I was much younger right? and I and I was much younger, understand that I was, uh, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was a child when I started to produce. I, there's mm-hmm. no, and it, I, I, I happened to be at the right place at the right time, uh, as the NHL grew from 17 to 21 teams and. The list of producers of hockey on television in our country you could do on one hand, and they needed more bodies. They added four teams, and they actually added a a fifth team when you think Calgary, if you want to put it that way, when Calgary uh, became the Flames there after leaving Atlanta. So there was so much work, and they they had bodies to fill, and I was the, I was I volunteered to fill the fill that void, and and so. Uh, when you're when you're 22 or 23 years old you know you're full of piss and vinegar and you think you know what's right and you also think that I'm not going to be a pushover and I'm not going to people aren't going to boss me around and I know what I'm doing and so don't tell me what to do I'm just going to do it like every 22 year old does now mm-hmm. um and so I lived that I lived that and and there are times it got me in trouble and there are times it didn't and 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 then when it, the, the times it didn't get me in trouble people would say wow that was brilliant i've never thought of it that way that was quite something and given the license to do it uh it worked out very well for my career
1: it, from, uh, from that perspective yeah there's an incredible story in the book uh maybe maybe you can let the listener and of course we don't want them to buy the book but there's lots of there's literally a, a thousand stories like this in the book you were around that age, maybe a little in your twenties, and you sort of had to tell Bobby Hall that he wasn't too too in uh, great shakes <laughs> as an analyst, to put it mildly.
2: Yeah, I well, you know, and, and there there's an overarching theme of that, and actually that night, and I because I don't want to go into the detail of the story because I think it's a good story to tell, and 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 I, it's one that the reader will enjoy, but but quite frankly, it it, it taught me as a producer. Um, that I have to over-prepare. Because what if I deal with commentators that don't prepare or don't have the passion that I have? And and I think that probably bothered me more than anything, Nate, was that why didn't Bobby Hull have the same passion for hockey that I did? You know, (laughs) and I I still think that. I said, why these guys that played the game because they've lived it and and it's been so much part of their DNA, uh, I think there are days that I still have more passion for the game than they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's fascinating to think of that. But the the whole one, was, and I, I and I could you know this guy was a legend. This guy was when I was a kid. I still remember getting his autograph at a at a celebrity hockey game in Kelowna, BC, and it was a it was an important day in my life. I I think I might still have the program. Um, but I was so mad at him, and I just I under no uncertain terms, and I had to tell him, and I did, um, and uh, it it I was right in in my judgment of him um but that didn't stop my boss from giving me hell for for
1: doing it so it's one of <laughs> yeah. those
2: things it's it a good it was a good learning day
1: <laughs> I bet of course bobby hole one of the great wings of all time the guy had the slap shot i think he tally up the nhl and wha a goals he had over over <laughs> 900 and again just to speak to his stature in canada when my mom had knee sur- or knee replacement surgery a few years ago we had my mother in an episode recently i got mentioned got her a Bob- bobby hall epi- uh, signed picture from the hospital went as a fundraiser for the hospital that mm. did it uh jo- john you meant talk about threads and I guess one really big one, and you're our first uh, Canadian media guest since Scott Morrison back in the season premiere, so I kinda so you kinda have to get called in in for the bullpen with the bases loaded for this question. Uh you know, big threat in Canadian sports media the last, I guess, few months was, you know, Kyle Beach coming forward with his abuse the abuse he suffered to Chicago in the NHL, Rick Westhead helping him tell his story and then the Hockey Canada scandal, which Rick Westhead and, and Katie Strang from The Athletic broke. One of the aftershocks with that was just to see this, you know, heavy hitting investigative journalism that affected, you know, uh, you know, the network, PSN's, you know, client relationships. Uh, but how much does that really show how much having the journalistic piece really adds value in sports broadcasting, you know, adds something for the fan?
2: Uh, you're assuming that I agree with you? Well, I mean, no, I'm. I guess no, I'm saying
1: how. <laughs> that doesn't. doesn't. Well, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't the, assume the, agreement.
2: The, the difficult part becomes, um, you know, and, and and listen, the beach story horrendous. Needed to be told. Uh, the hockey Canada issues and transparency needed to be told. Uh, there's no. There's no question uh, that I am. Uh, I'm not doubting what went on, and, and how they were covered. Um, but, but but not for a single day would I ever suggest that I'm a journalist. I've never been a journalist. Uh, mm. The moment, Nate, the moment that I decide that I want to cover a hockey game and then I pay for the right to cover that hockey game, I'm no longer a journalist. I'm a partner. Okay. I'm a partner. Um, and, and so that, that becomes a, a, a major issue. And you do you walk a very tight line, and you walk a tight line sometimes that you do piss off your partner. Uh, and but you, and there are times you need to tell the story. I, I felt uh, uh, you, you know that um, through other issues, uh, through other uh, other times, you know the 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 discussion that went went on, and goes on in sports. Period, and and, and leagues you have to be able to create a bit of a perception that you're journalists, but in, in essence, you're not. You know, there are times that, you know, the, the, the league or the network will push back one way or the other, and they have to tell a story. I think the, the best one to my mind in that, in that ilk was everything that happened in and around Colin Kaepernick, where, you know, the league was certainly not pro Cop, uh, Colin Kaepernick, but in the end, the networks found the obligation to have to tell a bit of the story and at least show the anthems for what that two-year period in the National Football League, when players did or didn't kneel um, over Kaepernick's uh, situation and what Kaepernick stood for. So it, it's it's not it's not it's never simple. It's not as simple as well, that's journalism and that's it. Well, it, it's it's just not that way. And, you, and people don't have to agree with me. That's fine. That's a reality of the business that we're in. You know, the greatest and biggest sporting event on an annual basis or a, uh, a regular basis are the Olympics. There's no more controlled event than the Olympics when it comes to what kind of pictures are used, what kind of stories are tell, or told, how controversial things can be. Um, so I, I, I think the journalism certainly has a place to play, particularly when in the end, um, there are lots of issues that need to be discussed like the beach one and like the hockey Canada issue. Uh, and they have a place to play in there, but on a regular day to day basis, I think it's, I, I think it's silly for people to think that, well, the guys around the game of hockey are journalists and they, they're going to disagree with me, but I just, you know uh, you, their job is to help you enjoy and grow the game because you they want you to come back and watch the game again the next night and it, as opposed to well you know working in the negative consistently we I, listen I, I I have lots of friends that disagree with Dave Hodge and I disagree with this all the time we're great friends and the difference between journalism and arena rights holder is a uh, is sometimes a fine line
0: and there's yeah, also and have, to, to go yeah, ahead yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I quickly before Neil asks a question, I yeah, I, th- I think Dan Jenkins was you know one of the greatest sports writers there ever was. I think he, you know, voiced something similar. You know that you know that there's there is the journalism, and there are people who um, with the rights holder are I guess a little bit with the estab- establishment. I you know I, I'll think of the exact quote later.
2: <laughs> well, you know, but Dan Jenkins had the great luxury of working for a company that was independent of any event that he covered.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, yeah.
2: I mean, he worked for Sports Illustrated for all those years, and Sports Illustrated was given access; they didn't have to buy access.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an even bigger, <laughs> bigger topic than too. It, but, it's a, yeah. it's a
2: major issue. It, yeah. it, you know, I mean, like like we talk about like sports broadcasting. Look at look at baseball as an example. How many of how many baseball announcers? How many baseball announcers are employees of the club?
0: I don't know. <laughs> are there any, I would are there suggest any less that
2: aren't. <laughs> that's. I I would suggest most of them are. Yeah, yeah. So so, and and, and so yeah. You, you really have to judge, you know. And and so what? How how did? For instance, and and I, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. How did the Houston Astros announcers cover the gambling scandal? Or the cheating scandal. How how did they? Uh, not gambling, but cheating. How did they cover
1: the cheating scandal? I don't know. <laughs>
0: Right. Nate, it's you a might a know one. that.
1: <laughs> I, yeah, they they had it was kind of like a, acknowledge it once at the start of the broadcast, early in the broadcast, and then yeah. just sort of let it go into the ether.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. That does happen. Yeah, I, I think there's also, I mean, listen. I think the the in, in our day and age, with just like everyone can do, you know, journalism is an art, right? So everyone can can partake and do it if you have a blog now, or you know, you have Twitter to. There's a there's a, a whole separate thing on. You yeah, know, but Neil, that, Neil, Neil journal, yeah. there's there's a code of conduct for journalism too, right?
2: So having a blog, it doesn't mess, make you a journalist,
0: right? But you can do journalistic work because it's an art, and you can, you can't be an engineer. Right? You can't try to build a bridge, but you can try and write an article. But that that that. But you you you
2: have to be. There's some training to become a good journalist. Agreed. There I think me, re- me, and Nate, me and Nate know about that. Well, yeah, you do, but not, not. But but there's lots of people out there that don't understand that.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and don't
2: that... understand that, and and be, because the lines have become so blurred. Exactly. Over the years. I mean, not just in sports, but in politics. Yes, the lines are blurred so badly, so it's 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 a diff- difficult one to to get your your head wrapped around at times.
0: I I, I agree, and I think I think um, you know what Rick does is he's an investigative journalist, which is a little bit different from let's say what Elliot does, Elliot Friedman, which is. Kind of a bit of an investigative journal, but he's not, you know, uncovering. He's finding out information in a different way, which is different from what David Amber does, which is, you know, hosting. So, th- I you know, I think that the general public doesn't know how these lines exist. And it's even more confusing now with, with everything being blurred, as you say. So speaking of blurred lines, <laughs> um, you know, just going down my list of questions here, um, your second stint at Hockey Night uh, mm-hmm. starts... Right around the time Gary Bettman takes over the NHL, just a year after, a year or two after. I think it's a year yeah, after. Yeah, now, he in, took it, over February of 93. So. Right. In 94, you started a game, mm-hmm. right? At Hockey mm-hmm. as the exec, executive yeah. producer. Yeah. So, I mean, did you see a, a difference from your... I know you had a different role the second time around, a much bigger role, but did you, did you see... A difference. uh, There's a quote in the book where you say, you know, um, it's after you're talking about Don Cherry, but the but this applies to the whole show. It says you could Hockey Night could promote and protect Canadian style hockey and buffer it from big business uh, brackets, particularly American big business, and keep it real and keep it ours. Did that become increasingly harder when Gary took over? No, because the contract that we had uh, allowed
2: us to do that. It said in no uncertain terms, we had editorial control. They could they they had no role in approving announcers. They had no role in approving content. The CBC, um, as is the CBC want to do, needs feels it needs to create some level of production integrity did did at that point. So I, I really did view I, I viewed it the first time around when I was there, too, but I, I certainly when I came back as exec producer, I viewed the show as a gatekeeper uh, in so many ways, because uh, e- even from a branding perspective, Neil, if you if you put the stick in the puck, the original Hockey Night logo in 1994 when I was there, um, and you put the NHL shield beside it, you you would see, there were lots of people that say they liked the the Hockey Night in Canada logo and understood what Hockey Night in Canada stood for more than the NHL logo did. Uh, um and 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 in fact when i went to the league and worked for the league in in the early 2000s we did a brand exercise um and th- the brand exercise put the nhl shield about 8 or 9 on the list of brands and logos viewed by canadians as being important and i think that was an eye opener to many of my friends in new york city at that point <laughs> so so but we were able to because we were hockey night in canada because we had a We had a history that we were proud of uh, and we had already created some level of production integrity. Um, We stood apart from the league at times when we needed to stand apart Uh, and we could, we could, we then felt we could be critical of the league Uh, and we wanted to, you know, we wanted to ensure that hockey night in Canada remained hockey night in Canada. Uh, we weren't interested in hockey night in San Jose or hockey night in Dallas. We wanted to make sure that, I mean, we at one point we had eight member clubs in Canada at, in, in that tenure, um, and we wanted to try to make sure that we we could protect Canadians in watching the way watching the game the way Canadians like to watch the game, and I think that that was important. Does that exist anymore? I, you know, it would be incorrect for me to answer that, because I'm I'm not party to that. Um, What I can tell you was that when I moved to the league, as I moved to the league in 2006, after working for the Maple Leafs,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. I worked there for another four or five years, a lot of the secret sauce that we had at hockey night became league philosophy. But hmm. it because what it did do was help us grow television production and television philosophy in the United States. Hmm. Um, and 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 so we ran seminars and we ran production theory meetings, and we were hands- on with all the regional rights holders to say, okay, here's here's what our expectation is. we We created a library of content that we gave them with the interest that it wasn't necessarily supposed to be a, an advertorial for the National Hockey League, but it was in the best interest of what was good hockey television production. So a lot of those secrets that, we ex- that existed in 1994-95 at, at CBC and Hockey Night got transferred to the NHL and, uh, and the member clubs in the United States particularly uh, in 2005-2010. to 2010.
0: Hmm. So before I let Nate jump in, and we're going to go back a little bit. Thank you for that, um, John. Um, you know, there's a kid line in, in, in NHL history. Um, and, and apparently, there, and that's, of course, with the, the old Leafs, I think it's uh, Charlie Conacher, Joe Primo, mm-hmm. and Busher Jackson, I think, sure. Busher Jackson. I've heard about a kid line under Ralph Mellonby at Hockey Night in Canada. It, does that ring a bell? Well, it, it, not only were we, did we work together, we lived together.
2: <laughs> uh, and we went to university together, uh, and that we met at uh, what was then called Ryerson uh, in the radio and television department. And um, Doug B. Forth, who ended up being the president of Rogers Sportsnet, uh, Rick Briggs Jude, who ended up being a senior production person at both TSN and at Sportsnet, and I were the we were the nineteen and twenty year old young guns bouncing around the walls of the Hockey Night in Canada office Monday to Friday, and then. Going and doing games Saturday and national games on Wednesday, and so we were. And we were. It, it was a, really a blessing. We were identified early in our careers that these guys were going to be the future of the of the of the show, uh, and we were trained that way. We were trained to be the the next producers and executive producers, and we were going to carry on the tradition of what became Hockey Night in Canada.
0: And and that was was it. Ralph that identified you you guys no there was it was a group of guys i would
2: there's i would actually give somebody uh by the name of, of bob gordon uh who was a longtime producer at uh, and did the most of the maple leaf games he was he was uh, one rung below ralph and he was more hands-on uh but he was the one who really identified doug first then rick and then me the, as the third one and uh, who, uh, of somebody that he wanted around and then then obviously with he worked for Ralph. So we, we, we had contact with Ralph. And then uh, I was, I was blessed because Ralph kind of Ralph and I were kind of cut out of the same cloth and Ralph and I, we, we battled daily, uh, but we also had a a passion to do it right. And he understood that of, uh, of me. And I understood that of him.
0: Do you, do you, do you think, I mean, I mean, I've come up, uh, you know, in, in sports TV and, and I look around me and I, do you think, that could ever happen again because i don't see a lot of 22 year olds roll. <laughs> usually usually they're on the row uh you know clipping highlights or you know they're running they're you know grabbing coffees yeah. and stuff hoping hoping at one point they can and that, that could be a generational thing maybe the generation behind me is now there's that gap a lot of things play play into that but i know for my generation it seemed like you had to like sell the farm to like like even walk in the door <laughs>
2: I, I truly believe it was right place at right time it was it was hmm. it was coincidence more than anything um, and it was it was when sports was exploding television was on the verge of exploding I mean, TS, ESPN had started in the late 70s TSN was coming in 1984 uh, there were other cable channels that were going to carry hockey at that period of time um, and so it's so truly and 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 I'm, we were cheap, we worked cheap, so you know, young, eager, cheap, boy, boy, that's a <laughs> that's a good equation to have people around, and we had a passion, like we had a passion, and we knew the game, we knew the game. I remember sitting one night with Dick Irvin in the client room at Maple Leaf Gardens, which is a little alcove, uh, mm-hmm. uh, beside the studio, and we went toe to toe with trivia. NHL trivia and Dick Irvin's a legend still is a legend in my mind always will be right. and, and, and we went toe to toe for trivia and I, I almost beat him <laughs> and, at one, uh, uh, and Dick just turned and said boy kid you're good uh. you know and that was that meant something and, and so you knew I knew at that point I was on the right
1: track uh, and one, one one story one thing you mentioned in rep passing reference uh from that period john was that you and your you know you know classmates you guys produced a vanier cup broadcast yeah, yeah, in toronto did. yeah I'm, I'm picturing neil and i that's actually the first thing we ever did together was university football uh true what, what was that like with the technology you would have been working with and it's well, the, late the, November, so it's probably not the nicest day. There's no dome stadium in 1976
2: or 77. Varsity Varsity Stadium was about uh, sat around 20,000 people, but there there was no such thing as wireless microphones then, uh, and we had we had uh, through we had two two headset microphones, and we needed a uh, a sideline reporter. So we actually the night before the Vanier Cup, we had got permission from the school to take a thousand feet of microphone cable and we (laughs) straw here we are three guys i mean we're you know teenagers we're stringing micro microphone cable through varsity stadium to our broadcast position uh in order for rick briggs dude to be our sideline reporter and so doug doug did the play-by-play i think i did the color and rick was our guy on the sidelines and uh and we were we were just having fun we loved it it was I mean we did it because we could and we did it because we wanted like we wanted to be part of the business so bad there wasn't any nobody could no, and nobody if you asked people that was the other difference guys in 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 those days if you asked people could we do that everybody said yes yeah go ahead and eh, go <laughs> ahead you know yeah we sure yeah if you could do it go ahead there was no well you have to get permission from so and so we have to do that we have to pay for rights and we have to do yeah go ahead And that was that was that was really exciting. We were again; it all be timing was so, so relevant to to our early success.
0: Yeah, and 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 moving. It's funny when you mention that I start as Nate mentioned. I I kind of forgot a lot about the stuff we did for for you know youth sports. But you do mention that uh, just having that student card and having the wherewithal of having that student card to get access really helped you back then, right? Get meetings with people and and, and insight, right? well I,
2: I, I and i, I, I do the t- the the students that I talked to today it's because there's a real gap right now there's a real gap between the media world and then the the sports world hmm. I don't know why it's happened whether it's just you know the, the you know the you know protection protection of the athletes uh, the buildings that are the way they're built now you don't have access to people right but uh, i I viewed my student card as a ticket a right. ticket to everything um And I had to do a radio documentary. And you could choose your own radio documentary topic. And I chose the future of the Canadian Football League. I love the CFL. And so I said, well, heck, I'm in Toronto. I better phone the commissioner. So I go go into the phone book, Canadian Football League, 11 King Street West, and there's the phone number. I dial the phone, Canadian Football League. Yes, could I have Jake Goddard, please? Who's speaking? It's John Shannon from Ryerson. Just a minute, sir. Boom. Pick up the phone. Jake Goddard. <laughs> Mr. Goddard, my name is John Shannon. I think I said Jake. That's my son's name. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's, so I, I, it's, it's John Shannon from Ryerson. I'm a student. I'm doing a documentary on the future of the CFL. Could I come and talk to you? I'm available tomorrow at 2 o'clock. I get on the subway. I have a, a, a huge, massive reel-to-reel tape machine that I don't even know how it works. And I'm lugging it on the subway and lug it down to King Street, up to the 11th floor. And there I am with Jake Goddard. And I realized that day that I'll just phone people. I'll just talk to them. And so that's all I did. I, I phoned Bill Stevenson. I phoned Johnny Esau. Everybody in our industry that I could talk to, I phoned just to see if I could you know, get a get a, a step ahead. Whether whether it was the when the Vancouver Canucks were in town, I'd phone the hotel and ask for Jim Robson. You know, I mean that's 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 what I did. And there are some of those guys that are still alive today that they turn like. Remember when you called me when you were nineteen years old? I said, Oh yeah. How could I forget? You took you took the call. So.
0: It, it is interesting too, um, you know, and having the uh, I guess the wherewithal to to use that. And there, and I do find now. Well, even myself, sometimes I'm like, you know, if I'm doing if writing a script or something, I'm like, I'm reluctant to call someone. I'm like, why am I not calling this person right now and finding out what I need to have in the script there? You almost, it's almost a, a self-policing that's gone on. And I think it is because you we're almost programmed to think we have to go through a certain channel or we're going to get in trouble uh, from our own company or from the other side. But again, I think that comes no. down to just journalistic instinct. Well, Um, again,
2: I've never been a journalist in my life, so... um, (laughs) What I would tell you, though, is I think there's a a layer of laziness Hmm. in all of it, because what happens is that I say, you know, I I say it to my kids. So, uh, I I gave you a number, did you you talk to him? Well, I I texted him. What what do you mean you texted him? (laughs) He doesn't know who you are. There's no value in a text. I mean, pick the right. phone up and call them, you know, and, and and I mean, a text is for after the fact. A text is for, you know, learning protocols. And I I do sound like an old man, I know, but learning protocols of communication are so important in everything we do. After all, we are in the communications industry
0: and we just sometimes
2: sure. don't know how to communicate
0: that's it's a it's a it's a good point it's a good point um it reminds me actually i mean I, I want to get into some of the questions but now i just start i feel like i want to just tell some stories too but i did have a, a good story about Gord cutler with that uh where i just walked in and asked him something once and it turned out to be very beneficial for me as opposed to like waiting or not asking so i'll tell yeah. you that later but, I've, but listen
2: i've hired people i've yeah. hired people places because of their persistence not because of their talent
0: right but because of their persistence Sure. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, and and that's a great lesson for anyone listening right now. That especially is probably you know younger or new to the industry, or maybe one of your students, um, or people maybe even still in the industry that are w- not willing to maybe go into that office and ask. Um, so listen, we this is a very harsh industry, and I mean the book title "Evolve or Die" lends itself to that. Um, and there's hard hard one lessons, I believe, is what what the subtitle is, and. This book is a lot, a lot of success on your part and a lot of times when it's been tough and you've had to figure it out uh, and you have. Um, so there's a quote, uh, learning how to manage one's dismissal should be a life lesson at university. It's a very practical, real skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain that to people because I, I work in this industry right now and I know what people say <laughs> say on the best of days, let alone when they get laid off. So explain. Well, first of all, don't call it laid off. You get fired. There Face the go.
2: reality, you got fired. <laughs> I've been fired. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, there are, there are cycles within being fired. You know, and, and it's embarrassing. It, it's embarrassing uh, to be told that you're no longer wanted or no longer good enough to do a job. Uh, and, and, how, and how to f- mentally and physically fight through that is something that I think that, that, that it, it's good for soul searching. What have I done right? What have I done wrong? Uh, how would I do things differently? Uh, again, it goes back to Nate's question about compromise. Um, and, and so I'm a better person for my failures than I am for my successes because I, I, I had to examine what I did wrong and how do I, how do I evolve when I'm given the next chance to be a better boss, a better partner, um, a better coworker, and that's that's what it's all about. Um, you know, I, you are, and and I think it's a generational thing too. Uh, you know, my father worked at the same job for 47 years. 47 years. Um, <laughs> right. I, I'm close to 47 years of work now, and have probably had you know 10 or 11 jobs. I right. uh, loved every one of them. Um, never really viewed them as jobs because I, it, it, but I, I had to change and I had to be better uh, and I had to be um, uh, more creative and I, I had to be open to suggestion. You know, if, if, if after running Hockey Night in Canada, uh, if somebody said, well, you're going to be running a, a tier two cable channel. Uh, involving a, a, a single team, how will you how will you react to that? My answer was, well, I I, could, I can't imagine it because I I was at the I was at the top of the hill. Now I'm going to start at the bottom. But it was one of the most fun things I ever did. It was one of the most enjoyable building processes I ever went through with 47 other people. Uh, it 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 truly became a watershed mark for how to be creative with no money. You evolved. To your environment and you learn to be better and and that's and, and in fact I will tell you right now I've used the slogan evolve or die a long time when I and when I speak you have right. to evolve or you or you 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 whittle away you disappear you die and um, I, I really started to learn that when I was at Leafs TV more than any other time because we had no money um, we had you know tier two equipment but we had enthusiasm, we had passion, we had youthfulness, and so we evolved to be better. And and what we did, in many ways, there are things that are still on the air on many channels, that got their first tries at Leafs TV, and right. that told me that people like things like that, and they were we were better for it.
0: Now, similar to the in Leafs TV, there's almost an example with the score. The score tried a lot of things, you know, before yep. it got absorbed by Rod. That kind of are part of what you see on Sportsnet now. But I mean, an aside too, I think the reaction is, is, is kind of what, what I was, was leaning towards too. I mean, you, you talk about a lot of things that when you get let go, you can learn and you can, you know, I, I guess, absorb new, new skills and, and try new things, but just the reaction too, right? Like taking the high ground is super hard. I think you, you write about that. And, um, I remember actually, uh, I think I started the NHL network right after you, uh, uh Got fired, or, or whatever you want to call not it. No, got fired. Uh, uh, and I remember running into, you probably don't remember this, but I ran into you at uh, a Leaf game, and I said, oh, you know, I'm at the NHL Network. And you said, oh, yeah, they, you know, I said, well, you said, you know, who'd they bring on, or maybe you knew, and I said, oh, so-and-so. And he said, oh, they got a good man, great. And then I was like, man, this guy seems, like, way too positive about, about this. Well, but it's The other fun. thing,
2: Neil, our industry's so small. Mm. You know, if you hold a grudge in our industry, you're not going to last very long. Right. You know, that's in particularly in Canadian media. It's mm-hmm. bigger in the United States, but in Canadian media, if you hold a grudge, you're not going to last.
0: Right. Um, yeah, no, it's a fair point, I think. And it's one that it's a skill, I think, too. As I said, I, I, in, in our industry where there's so much volatility, I hear a lot of, uh, a lot of times. So that, I think it's a good lesson. Um, okay, let's switch gears to um, uh, Don Cherry. Um, and, you know, do you, I, I would say probably synonymous with Hockey Night Canada as Foster Hewitt. I don't know, maybe more so for this generation. I don't know. Um, recency bias, you're correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: um, That's one of my, by the way, that's my favorite slogan in 2022.
0: Recency bias? Recency bias. I like it. It's, it's, it's true a good
2: because one. It, 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 it applies to everything yes it's true it applies to everything who is the greatest oiler yes. of all time Connor mcdavid well yeah, bias. wayne gretzky
0: <laughs> no it, yeah. it's true because me and nate had this conversation the other day when i was watching the sports center top 10 and somehow they had uh the world series of 1992 as number three and the ba- the bautista bat flip as number two and i was like <laughs> nate uh i don't know if a, a bat flip in a in a divisional series can trump uh, a world <laughs> series but somehow i think it was a recency bias myself yeah, there
1: was a, there was a bat flip in my apartment when you told me that <laughs>
2: um well so i i agree with neil on this one you know um, the, the, but that's the that's the magic and frustration of toronto sports fans you know right. jose bautista and doug gilmore two legends yeah <laughs> never won a championship <laughs> either of them in toronto
0: no it's true it's true um uh okay so uh, i want to ask you again uh When I've seen you in the Foster Hewitt uh, gondola Mm -hmm. uh, and Coach's Corner used to come on, everyone would get their ice cream and watch the TV, Mm -hmm. but you would have your back turned to the TV and you'd kind of be staring at the ground listening. Now, is that something that goes back to your... Is that a coincidence or is that something that went back to like your production days on this? Uh, Because, yeah, you were the only guy facing the other way. I
2: I wanted to hear every word. Okay. I didn't want to be distracted. I wanted to hear every word, listen to every word. I didn't need to see Don one more time. Um, <laughs> and I say that lovingly, but I wanted to make sure that I listened to every word that was said.
0: There you go. Nate,
1: uh, go ahead. Yeah, of course, writing the book and you know meant writing about Sherry. Uh, how did you work through finding a, what I thought was a pretty balanced assessment of How it all sort of ended for him which is i guess coming up three years in i guess the third anniversary of that is coming up this month too
0: yeah
2: um i don't know if it was balance i you know i i think one of the one of the other underlying stories that i i are themes or threads that comes through in my book and i really was in tune to was loyalty i i i think we've forgotten the word A great deal not just in not just in sports broadcasting but I think a lot of places I think we've lost loyalty Um, and and so uh, so you combine that with when you know I I hadn't worked I haven't worked with Don directly in two decades Uh, I did spend a lot of time with Don um, for a couple of reasons Um, in the first two or three years of the Rogers deal uh, as he was trying to feel comfortable and and the, the new management team was trying to feel comfortable. I was a common thread again. Uh, so I could sit with Don before the show started while Ron was doing the rest of the show and we would sit and, and, and yak and have a good time and reminisce about old things and 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 storylines. Um, but it, it would be difficult for me to, to uh, even in the book to write about um, what went on that you know, that November three years ago because I wasn't there to be behind the scenes. I don't know what went on. I don't know how it happened. I was a viewer at home too. So, so I could only talk about Don in terms that I know Don and what mm-hmm. Don has done for me, uh, what I have done for Don uh, and the relationship that we still maintain. And politically, we are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Politically, he, he's uh, he's much more to the right than I am. Um, and you know we can agree to disagree a ton of times, and but we still remain friends. And I think that's what I hoped came across in the chapter I wrote about him.
1: Oh yeah, the, lo- the loyalty shone through there, and then it was just sort of, you know, a, a, you know, a fair assessment of as uh, to quote from the, the movie The Dan United, the last two words in every story ever written. Neil. Yeah, I
0: mean, it, it, I think I think what comes across really well there is Don the person, which is a. Uh, I think, um, you know, I I don't, you know, I I basically Don Cherry as a person comes across really well. And I can read mentioned this on our podcast earlier, too. Like Don Cherry, the person is is a good guy. He's got a good heart. And you put that great story in about I I don't want to give too much away. uh, But, you know, he comes to your house with Christmas gifts uh, when you're laid off. Yeah, yeah, so yeah so I think fired, what I would that fired, fired, you know. fired yeah what I would say is I, I would encourage anyone like the, most of the people that have really strong opinions of Don cherry to me are people that don't usually watch they haven't seen every coach's corner or or they just kind of know what they know from, through hearsay I would encourage them to read this uh, this chapter or this portion of the book just to yeah. find out who he is as a person so moving on um, uh, Gretzky's last game. Uh, mm-hmm. I I found out about it on Hot Stove, I remember. Uh, uh, and we asked Al about this, and I said, you know, how did you let John scoop you on this, Al? Um, but I uh, found out about it on the Hot Stove, on the Satellite Hot Stove. And I remember our, our worry at the time was, okay, his last game that we will be able to see will be in Ottawa, and we won't be able to see him play Pittsburgh in New York on the Sunday afternoon. I think it was a Sunday afternoon. It was, yeah. Uh, uh, um, uh, thank you. Um, could you tell people that don't know about this uh, what happened how uh, the challenge of getting this on the air when it wasn't even part of your properties at the time at that back in 1999
2: well yeah I, I, you're right john davidson john davidson went on the air and and basically used his hand as a meter and said a week ago wayne gretzky was at about a 25 on the meter to retire and now he's at a 99 percent to retire so that was the saturday before uh all the events occurred so it's sunday morning i phoned john and i said listen are, are you serious about what you said last night and he said yes so i phoned my boss and said we don't have that game and it would be a crying shame if hockey night in canada isn't there for Wayne Gretzky's last game in the national hockey league we've got to have this game alan you know this is this is important so Allen, to his credit, agreed with me. And we started the process of five or six days. They, the Rangers were in Ottawa on the Thursday night, which was a TSN game already. Um, mm-hmm. And and so we had Saturday night, traditional Saturday night, end of the regular season in Montreal, Toronto, from Bell Centre in Montreal. And then, you know, Sunday, we were getting ready for the playoffs. And so we, it took us four days. It took us two days to get to the league to agree uh, to let us carry it we had to pay again for it we had to pay money to buy the game mm-hmm. it's not just a question of well you're you're the right holder. you had to buy the game so we had to figure out that and and then we had to convince the network to give us the airtime, to do the game and and that was a bigger issue and I remember being called to the uh, the the executive VP's office and he said well you're not you don't know for sure he's going to retire I said yes I do he says, "Well, if it, it, this is on your head, if he doesn't retire," I said, "Trust me, he's going to retire." You know, we've we've already seen the plans for the post-game event. He's retiring; it's done. And and I truly believe, and and we've never talked about this. Um, I truly believe that that Slako who is that that person in charge, phoned Mansbridge, and I think he said, "Peter, what do you think? Should we let them have the time?" And I think Peter probably weighed in and said, "And Peter loves the game of hockey." I think yes. Peter agreed that that we should carry the game and that's how we got the network time and the league had already agreed to let us do it and and then we spent three and a half days working our tails off building programming in and around who was going to do that what features existed how long we would stay on the air Uh, and it was a a whirlwind a whirlwind uh, 72 hours to to get that done in addition to trying to get ready for the stanley cup playoffs we're going to start the following
0: wednesday it's funny, I, me- I messaged uh, Shirali Najik uh, when I um, was trying to get some background on the, our interview today. And he said, if, if you met- ask him anything, ask him about that game. <laughs> so I know you call yourself in the book the world's most uh, high pay- highest paid, highest paid, spotter. paid floor director. <laughs> yeah,
2: floor director you know? <laughs> so what happened was that MSG, the Madison Square Garden, It's uh, it was before the renovation. It wasn't the most conducive television building. Mm-hmm. um and and the tv mobiles are on the on the on street level and the ice rink is on the fifth floor of the arena um right. and and so communication and connectivity between what's going on in the arena and and the truck sometimes are difficult and i was getting very frustrated halfway through um the first period and i said screw this i'm going upstairs so i went upstairs and we had it we did have a headset installed between the benches and I stood between the benches and basically Paul Graham was producing Shirley was directing uh, and I was a spotter I was saying uh, you know so and so and I and I'm being a sports junkie I, I recognized everybody in the building right. and so so we had we had a great line of communication with the three of us making sure that everything was set in t- you know the right close-ups were there Janet's moving. You know, my job wasn't to watch the hockey game in the end. My job was to watch the arena, right? Uh, and 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 it made for a really, really, uh, a, a, a a beautiful show for the greatest player to ever play the game.
0: You know, it's interesting uh, when, it, when what I remember from that game, from just a fan perspective, I hadn't started working in media yet. Um, I was in university. Is is um, a friend of our? Me and me and Nate both know Ben Millage. His dad never had a TV but he actually went out and bought a TV for, for that game. So I think you, uh, yeah, Um, listen, I know you've given us a lot of time. I just, I want to go through a couple of rapid fire type questions and then we can, you know, we can get you back to where you need to be. I'm sure you're ready to watch some hockey. Um, You, uh, did you produce the 1991 NHL all-star game? Uh, remind me. That was the one in Chicago Stadium. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I did. I was part... Of, we,
2: we did uh, we did the Skills and the All-Star. That was for Sports Channel America. I, after I left hockey night the first time, um I ended up getting and 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 did 2 years of Global, then I, I I moved and worked in the United States for 4 years on the Sports Channel America national package and we did we did the we did the first Skills competitions. Right. That was a, that was a challenge. And we well, we also did uh, the all-star game through the Gulf War that was on
0: Sports Channel yeah, and on exactly. NBC. Yeah, that's the one I'm wondering about because, yeah. I mean, that is an abundance of riches if you were uh, a producer. I, like, the, the crowd's going bananas. It's the height of the Gulf War. So mm-hmm. do you remember, like, seeing that and, like, choosing shots? Where do I go next? There's sparklers, <laughs> flags. People are losing their no, mind. No,
2: because cause if you, I mean, there are those of us that had been in part in the game. If, if, if the Blackhawks were good, that all existed. You know the Black eye It was crazy then, and the when Denny Savard was there, and, mm-hmm. and it was it was crazy. My favorite story there was, on um, NBC was carrying the actual game, uh, the Gulf War was on, and NBC had a, 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 a philosophy that they didn't carry a national anthems. Oh, okay. We don't we don't carry national anthems. So, but on, but Sports Channel America was a little less, right. restrictive, so. We ran Wayne Mesmer singing the Star Spangled Banner on the Friday night of the All-Star Game, or Saturday, Friday, one of those days. Um, And it was electric in -hmm. that building. Gulf War on, Wayne Mesmer, Mm -hmm. you know, and and Mesmer sang it better than anybody. Um, And and, and as the anthem is ending, you can hear... three sets of shoes coming up the stairs of the mobile and it's three nbc executives yelling at the top of their lungs we're carrying the anthem tomorrow
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, wow. so
2: they got the feel for it too and that 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 to me in many ways that was vincent domfus's greatest all-star yes. game he was so good but in the end people remember the anthem more than they remember anything else
0: it's funny yeah the i think the canadian fans or at least the leaf fans remember domfus and the, yeah. the anthem was the big thing on the u.s side absolutely um, um Jacques Primo's coverage of was last game in Montreal uh you describe as brilliant TV an iconic Hockey Night in Canada moment why to the average person how can you descri- describe what Jacques Primo did to, to to show and convey the emotion of that night Jacques Primo was the best hockey director ever period
2: um played the game understood the game could speak both languages lived in Montreal we brought him to Toronto after the fact uh, in fact when I was with the Maple Leafs to direct Maple Leaf games uh, but that night, um, this whole line of the relationship between Mario and Patrick and Ronald Corey, Jacques knew that from the moment th- that, that Patrick shrugged his, his, uh, his shoulders in despair after the seventh goal, hmm. and he stuck with it, and it was the, the simplicity of covering three people. There's 18,000 people in the building. There's 40 hockey players. But he covered three people, uh, and then the magic of the start of the third period, when the when the period starts, Ronald Corey's chair is empty. Right. And he he it, that that's the simple. I talked about it earlier. Sometimes the greatest stuff can be the simplest stuff. Right. And and he covered it just so simply. Uh, on the English side, the fascination on the English side was that. That game was seen regionally in the province of Quebec only. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it, it wasn't on satellite. It was not on set. It was only on terrestrial television. So there was no satellite. You couldn't sit on your 10-foot dish in those days and watch it in, in Red Deer. Right. Um, so, but it was. you knew as the night went on, it was the biggest story going. So by the time we had covered it so well you know bringing highlights back bringing tape back starts of the period dick doing a recap i think there are people in english canada that really think they watch the whole game live in montreal Ah. and that to me was that was one of the most exciting nights of being a storyteller in the game and because people still talk to me i remember watching that game if you lived in toronto you did not see that game right and you only saw it through you only saw it through our eyes through our 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 vision of what the intermissions would look like and, and everything like that
0: okay move, moving on for for time's sake uh dave hodge flips his pen canada knows about it and then he takes a long walk he goes from 60 carlton street to the weston harbour castle and who does he call he calls me i'm in home in calgary i've
2: i've, I've lived in calgary since uh, 1980 uh, i'm producing uh Canadian football I think I'm doing uh, anyway I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting ready for the Olympics working again for Ralph Mellenby sure. uh and but I had been hired by Global Television to produce their version of the Stanley Cup playoffs uh for uh, under the Carling O'Keefe Brewery banner. remember it was mm-hmm. in in those days it was a brewery yep. war Molson versus yep. Carling O'Keefe so I was I was I got fired by the Molson guys got hired by the Carling O'Keefe guys and so uh um, he literally walked down the West and picked the phone up and said, so do you need a host? And I said, yes, you're hired. And so I didn't ask knew. anybody. Else.
0: I did Sorry, go ahead.
2: I said, I didn't, I didn't ask any, I didn't ask the president of global. I just said, yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be working for us. Don't worry. You're hired.
0: And so he, <laughs> he, he, he knew, he knew right as soon as he left the building, he was done. Right. Cause I think some people wonder like what he, you know, what he was thinking after that, but I think he, he, he figured
2: he was done. <laughs> I, think, I think he uh, figured he
0: was done. Uh, um, okay. The insider, Uh, A Tim Russert article, uh, sorry, an article uh, involving Meet the Press's Tim Russert is handed to you by Ron McLean. How does that make or I guess catalyze the unprecedented move? Because I don't don't think I've seen it in sports of a man going from being a producer and being a head honcho to working in front of the camera.
2: Yeah, it was the last Stanley Cup final I did for uh, Hockey Night, Uh, the the Dallas-New Jersey Stanley Cup final. We're flying home on American Airlines. And Ron and Don and I are sitting together in the cabin. And Ron tears out a page. And I think I, I think Ron probably had been talking to the people at CBC and they, they knew they were going to make a change. Um, didn't tell me that until August. But they, they and and, <laughs> and he, he tore it out and he said, here, this is a great story. This is what you should think of doing. And it was a story of Tim Russert, who was the... Uh, uh, who was the host of Meet the Press and was NBC's political insider, um, and he had started as a as a producer for NBC, and right. ten years later had migrated to be on the air, and he said, and Ron literally said, "Hey, this should be you, you should be on the air," and by then I was uh, I I was I knew I was beaten up pretty badly. I was tired, it you know the playoffs always beat you up when you're on the road for 60 right. days. But I kind of knew my time at CBC was coming to an end. I, I was hoping it wasn't, but I kind of had a, a gut feel. Um, and uh, it, it took another 10 years for me to get on the air, but I, I finally took it to heart. And I still have the article somewhere in a,
0: in a file in my basement. Well, I mean, excellent. I, on that note, you, you, you then become kind of an insider using all your contacts. Um, and then you're, you're doing this in concert with Elliot Friedman, Chris Johnson. How do you guys as insiders divide up who's going to break what? And, and is that another producer telling you that? Or how does that work? Because no. you're all getting inside information on the you know, yeah. similar subject. Yeah, although we do have strengths. For
2: instance, I remember Chris saying he's hearing that a player is being traded, but he doesn't know the agent. And I said, who's the agent? And he said, so-and-so. And I said, well, I, he's one of my best friends. So I'll phone oh, him. Okay. So there is, there, is, there is a ton of collaboration that exists. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, and, and there's a ton of collaboration that exists that somebody who was told information can't really be the one giving it out because then they would know where the leak is. Oh. Uh, um, and, and so there's a sharing of information there. Both Chris and Elliot, uh, do, do an amazing job of creating. It's all about creating relationships with people, agents, mm-hmm. players, managers, coaches, owners, scouts, you know, league presidents, team presidents that's what it's all about is building relationships and having the trust of those people to say can you tell me something that i can get out there and the person believing
1: that that's the best way to get the news out well, one more hmm. question each nate go ahead yeah in terms of your relationship to sports uh, john when you were growing up in british columbia you mentioned you off to like some pretty big names that you used to pull in on the radio from the west coast of the united states yeah Obvious question would be to ask with Vin Scully since you know he Vin Vin recently left this mortal world but I wanted to ask with someone who's not as well known but perhaps should be. What was it like to actually hear Bill King calling games on the radio from Oakland? Oh, well and I had become a Raiders
2: fan because of it. As a kid, yeah. I loved the Raiders. Uh, and but Bill King was just he was a he was a dynamo. He he was so special. He had a great sense of drama. He had that you know he didn't have the great voice nate uh there's a little nasally uh, but his level of excitement his level of anticipation uh and his descriptive words were just fantastic i I, to this day guys i still love radio and it's because of those days that you're talking about nate about you know turning on the old electro home stereo and seeing if the cloud cover allows us to get you know los angeles san francisco (laughs) portland and seattle that day
0: from TV to radio to finally the written word, which is, you know, the base of this book. Um, did did you get a new, as a guy working in TV uh, and radio, did you get a new respect for the written word? It's very well written. Did you did you lean on anyone, any brunt or anyone? And did you get, uh, you know, a, res- a new respect or um, I guess a more ingrained respect for for the ink-stained uh, wretches like Al and Eric Dehatchik and guys that you just wrote for a living? I don't know how they love it. That's the one thing I will tell
2: you that's uh, I I do I do respect that uh, I do have a ton of respect to the editor They gave me Justin Stoller at Simon & Schuster's brilliant. Right. Uh, he did a magnificent job in coaching me and 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 grilling me on things that I assume people would learn, <laughs> would know that I have to learn how to explain in layman's terms. And that's fair because I do that to right. hockey players and to announcers when they get too inside. Uh, so there's that. I had written enough in my time. Guys like Mike Carmack, when he was at Sport, Sportsnet, right. um, they had, I had been writing three or four blogs a week. 900 to 1000 words a week uh, for for the website that I I did understand the written word, I did understand how to do it. But I also wanted to do it in my voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was that was, you know, and they would come back and say, Well, you people wouldn't normally say things that way. Why do you like doing dot 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 all the time? I like doing dot 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 because that to me indicates a pause. (laughs) Um, And and so I I, I found, I found, I did find a, a voice that I enjoyed writing in, um, and, but I do think it was important that it was my voice and not my words to somebody else to creating a voice.
0: Thank you for your time today, uh, Mr. Shannon. Uh, you gave us a lot of time and uh, I thank you for that. Hey, listen, it's, uh, it, the one thing I will
2: tell you guys is that when I, I read now and they say, broadcaster, producer, author, <laughs> uh, that's kind of cool for sure that is kind of
0: cool and they nobody can take it away absolutely not thank you so much for your time today uh john and i'm sure you got some hockey to watch and um we were very pleased to to discuss this book with you evolve or die thanks for taking the time for me too cheers boys yeah thank you so much john